One, thank you, Tom. Thank you, choir and kids. And that should really be our prayer. Is that if God would just awaken the wonder of who He is in our hearts, we would have revival. Uh, so may that be our prayer throughout the day. And as we go throughout this Christmas season, that God would truly stir our hearts to see how glorious and mighty and majestic and wonderful and powerful that He is. Luke chapter 1, as we've been looking at Luke's account, this exact truth, this account of what Luke calls exact truth, we saw last week that the 400 years of silence after Malachi the prophet prophesied, that 400 years of silence was broken by God with two angelic visits, one to Zechariah in the temple complex, one to Mary, presumably in her home. That silence was broken not only by two angelic visits, but by two miraculous events, one in, the womb, one in an old barren womb, one miraculous event in a young virgin womb. The silence was broken not only by two angelic visits and two miraculous events, but by two promised births, that of John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah, and then one song of praise that will one day culminate in a song of praise to the Lamb as all those who have been redeemed from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe, from every people group will give glory to Jesus Christ for His salvation. This morning, we see the outcome we see the outcome of those first two angelic visits. We see the first of those miraculous events we discussed last week come to pass. We see the first of those promised births take place, and we see another song erupt this time from the lips of Zacharias. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse number 57, it says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth, to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Isn't it nice when your neighbors and your relatives rejoice with you instead of envy you? You know, you think there'd be some people in the community who would look at Elizabeth and look at her with scorn, even though she had been so long barren. But we see here that her neighbors, her relatives gathered together to, to celebrate. And they're truly celebrating the birth. And they're excited that righteous Elizabeth has finally been blessed with a long-awaited child. In verse 59 it says, And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Now that would make plain common sense, wouldn't it? Zacharias has been longing for, praying for, and waiting for a child for years, and now he has a son, and the common, most common sense thing to do would be to name him Zacharias Jr. And everybody in the room agrees, but in verse 60, his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. Now here we get a subtle hint that Zacharias in the temple when the angel said, you're not going to be able to speak until the baby's born, we get a, we get a subtle hint here that maybe not only Zacharias lost his ability to speak, but he lost his ability to hear as well. Or they would have just said, hey Zacharias, do you agree with this? But instead they make signs to Zacharias trying to speak to him through some sort of sign language. 
And look at what he says in verse 63. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak praise of God. Isn't that amazing that the first words, he's been mute for nine months. He's, he's potentially been deaf for nine months. And his tongue is loosed, his ears are open, and the first thing he does is speak praise of God. And fear, in verse 65, came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them kept them in mind. Saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Verse 67, it says, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Zacharias has been potentially deaf for nine months. He's heard no voice. He's been unable to speak for nine months. It's almost as if he's had a nine-month sabbatical from normal, everyday life. And, and can you imagine how much he's thought about what happened in that temple? Can you imagine how much he's thought about the words of that angel? Can you imagine how he's watched his wife's stomach grow as the baby inside of her developed, as he saw his cousin Mary come visit, and he saw the interchange between Elizabeth and Mary? All of these things Zacharias has been processing in the silence of where God has placed him for nine months. And I would guess that Zacharias learned probably more about his own heart and he was probably awakened more with wonder about who God was than he ever had been before. And the proof of that is the praise for God that leapt from his mouth the moment his tongue was loosed. And what does he prophesy about? He doesn't prophesy about the greatness of Zechariah. He doesn't prophesy even about the greatness of John the Baptist. He doesn't prophesy about the greatness of the miracle that happened in Elizabeth's womb. He prophesies about the very thing we can experience this morning in the 21st century church here in Middle Tennessee and it is the salvation that has come to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he talks about in verses 68 all the way down to the end of the chapter. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Verse 74, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. These are His first words. I got a feeling He's been contemplating these for nine months. I think he's been thinking about this for nine months. And when his tongue is loose, it just pours out of him five insights into salvation 
from Zechariah. Listen to how he describes salvation. First of all, he describes it as a powerful salvation. A powerful salvation. In verse 68 it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Yahweh God of Israel. For He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. He has accomplished redemption for His people. The Lord God, Yahweh God of Israel, has accomplished redemption, redeeming us from death, redeeming us from hell, redeeming us from the grave, redeeming us from the slavery of our sin and of Satan. And he, He has come and accomplished this. This salvation is not something that can be accomplished by Jews carrying out the ceremonial law. That's why I don't understand why people get so excited about the thought that supposedly they may begin sacrificing again in Jerusalem. This is an exciting thing because Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. They need something. No, they will never accomplish salvation through sacrificial sacrifices, ceremonial law. They will never accomplish salvation by law-keeping. We won't accomplish salvation by our greatest efforts. Listen, on the greatest day of the greatest week of the greatest month of the greatest year of our life if we could multiply that times a million we would never ever ever accomplish salvation God must accomplish it for us that's how helpless that's how hopeless that's how sinful we are God must accomplish our salvation for us and how does he do that by visiting us verse 68 blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplish redemption for his people. You see, every other religion on planet Earth, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Islam, whether it's, you just fill in the blank, Mormonism, Jehovah's false witnessism, fill in the blank with any kind of religion you can come up with, and they all have one common theme. They all have a list of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, things to accomplish in an effort to climb the mountain towards heaven to God. In the words of Oprah Winfrey, all roads lead to heaven. It doesn't really matter what you believe or which one you believe, and, and really all of them are the same. All of them give us rules and regulations and do's and don'ts to try to climb the mountain to eternal life with God with no hope, with no peace, with no assurance except for Christianity because God did not give us a list of rules and, rules and regulations, a list of do's and don'ts to climb the mountain to be good enough to get to Him. He came down off of the mountain and He entered into life as a human being in a manger in Bethlehem and He lived the life that God requires of us for us in our place and he died the death that our sin deserves on the cross in our place and he was buried dead in our place and he rose from the grave triumphant victorious in our place and he stands in our place now interceding for us before the father he accomplished all of this and there's no room for boasting Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and He accomplished redemption for His people. In verse 69, and He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. A horn of salvation for us. A horn is used in the Bible to symbolize strength. A horn is used in the Bible to symbolize power. God has visited us. And He, the Lord God of Israel, has accomplished salvation 
for us. And he has raised up a horn of salvation, strong and powerful for us. This is a powerful salvation. That's why Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is not a power of God. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have a powerful, powerful salvation. Zechariah not only points us to a powerful salvation, but a promised salvation in verses 70 to 73. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. This is a promised salvation and it has been promised by God from the beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not plan B. It is not as if God were sitting in heaven and he said, boy, I'm I'm putting my my bets on Adam and Eve. And, and, And some of the angels said, well, I'm putting my bets on Satan. And they all just watched this unfold and God's like, oh man, now I've got to come up with plan B and raise the stakes a little bit. That's not how it worked. God from eternity past knew and decreed everything that would unfold. It was his plan from the beginning of time for man to fall into sin and for him to send a redeemer to accomplish salvation for us, to glorify his name and to display his attributes for us. This has been promised from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when he's pronouncing judgment on the serpent and he's disciplining Adam and he's disciplining Eve and he promises in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the head of the seed of the serpent he said you will bruise his heel but he will crush your head now a woman doesn't have seed the man has seed but in this case Mary didn't have a man's seed she had her own seed implanted in her womb miraculously through the Holy Spirit of God so Genesis 3 comes to pass here in Luke chapter 1 and 2 this has been promised since Genesis chapter 3 the prophets of old according to Zechariah have been prophesying this and talking about the coming of the Messiah he's coming to redeem us he's coming to save us salvation is coming this was a promise made to Abraham himself in Genesis chapter 12 God told Abraham I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and all the nations will be blessed because of you he's not talking about national Israel there he's talking about the blessing that would come from Abraham's loins Isaac and Jacob's loins who would be Jesus Christ that's how Abraham was going to bless the whole world was through Jesus and if you bless Jesus you will be blessed by him spiritually speaking if you curse Jesus you will be cursed by him spiritually speaking the Bible has one story and the story is God visiting his people to accomplish their powerful salvation and it has been promised since the beginning that was and that is and that always has been the plan it has been promised since the beginning and throughout history it is a promised salvation it's a powerful salvation it's a promised salvation and then in verses 74 and 75 we see thirdly that it is a purposeful salvation Zechariah says in verse 74 to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now notice this. There's a purpose behind this salvation. It is a powerful salvation and it is a promised salvation, but there is a purpose behind it and the purpose is we are redeemed 
from the hand of our enemies. Not so that we can just go on about our life and have it easier, comfortable, joy-filled, no problems, live-for-me kind of life. And you know, that's what quote-unquote salvation is for a whole lot of people and a ton of Baptists. As you walk down the aisle, you pray the prayer, you get baptized, you join the church, you walk out the doors with Jesus on your back like a backpack heading to school, and he helps you accomplish all of your dreams and all of your visions. He helps you make more money. He helps you get a bigger house. He helps you get better cars. He helps you get nicer clothes. Anything you want to do, Jesus is like your backpack. He just gives you that little boost to make it happen. So, the, so millions of people, tons of Baptists, have Jesus tacked on as this little helper who is there to help them accomplish all that they're supposed to accomplish. And that is not what Zechariah prophesies, and that is not what the Bible teaches. Salvation is you and I have been slaves to Satan and we are on the chopping block headed for hell and God redeems us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and he purchases us and he purchases our freedom so that we might, according to verse 74, serve him. You have been purchased, your freedom has been purchased to serve Him. The goal and the purpose of salvation is service. God saves us so that we might serve. He sets us free for service. This is what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16 says. It says, act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. And let me just say, some of you may not be as up on all of the trends in Christendom but there's a trend in Christendom that says today you know I'm a I'm a believer I'm a Christian and therefore you know I have a whole lot of freedom in Christ to do things that will bring shame on the name of Jesus you know there's some gray areas that I can just I can hang out in because I'm free and it doesn't really matter how it affects people around me. It doesn't really matter how it affects my witness. It doesn't matter how it makes people think of me because I'm free in Jesus. And I think that is an absolute perversion of what freedom is talking about in the Scriptures because here it says, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Hear me very carefully. We are free, not free, to play fast and loose with our holiness. We are free, but we are not free to play fast and loose with our efforts to live above reproach and blameless lives. We are free. We are free to live as Christ's subjects. We have been set free from a hard, bad, evil taskmaster taskmaster, so that we can serve a good and holy Savior. We are free to live for. We are free to witness for. We are free to be faithful to our new Savior. And, And just think about this. You know, we, we love the fact that we are free in this country. We kind of celebrate that freedom. If you go to other countries, you come back and you celebrate that freedom. Think of what, happened, what would happen every Sunday if we had the same pride in our freedom in Christ. And we come to this place... And it is like it is like an independent celebration every Sunday that we have been set free from sin, from Satan, and now we can celebrate freedom in Jesus Christ to be His servants forever. How would that change how we worship? How would that change how we live if we really saw our freedom in Christ that seriously? The Lord God, just as He promised, visited us and accomplished in His omnipotent, almighty power our salvation so that we can serve Him. 
And not just serve him like a slave would serve a master in fear. But so that we could serve him according to verse number 74 without fear. Without fear. In holiness and righteousness. See, we can serve him wholeheartedly without fear, without guilt, without shame, without despair because he has made us holy and he has made us righteous by visiting us and accomplishing for us salvation. It's a purposeful salvation. Fourthly, we see the prophet of salvation in verses 76 and 77. Verse 76 says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's looking at his baby. Now he looks at his baby and he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. This is what Malachi prophesied back in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. When he said, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So that I will not come and smite the lamb with the curse in the temple. When the angel comes to Zechariah, he says in Luke chapter 1. If you look back in verse number 17, it says it is he, as he's speaking of John the Baptist to Zechariah. He says, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, talking about Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And now here we are. He's born. And Zechariah says, it's you. You're the one Malachi spoke of. You're the one the angel spoke of in the temple. You are the one who's going to go before the Lord to prepare His ways. And I want you to notice something that Zechariah does here. Zechariah mentions John the Baptist, but the celebratory song is centered on Jesus. Do you notice that? Like, John Baptist, you're going to be a great prophet. You're going to be the forerunner of the one we've been waiting on. The angels visit in the temple, Zechariah's prophecy, they both define John the Baptist's life in relationship to Jesus' life. And in, in, in relationship to Jesus' mission. It's not John the Baptist, you have a mission. It's John the Baptist, you are part of Jesus' mission. And think about it, John the Baptist would live in obscurity until the time came to prepare the way for Jesus. Where did John go after Luke chapter 1? He disappears. We don't hear anything about him. He's gone. He goes into obscurity until the time comes to prepare the way for Jesus. If you drop down to verse number 80, it says, The child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He just hung out in obscurity until it was time for him to publicly appear to Israel. And what did he publicly appear to Israel to do? To prepare the way for Jesus. He didn't build John the Baptist church. He didn't didn't form John the Baptist ministries. He didn't say, I need to start a 501c3 and you guys can buy me a new jet because I really have a great mission to do. No, he came and he put the spotlight on Jesus Christ alone. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, what does John the Baptist do again? When Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist goes back into obscurity. 
gets put in a jail, gets his head cut off. And that's the end of John the Baptist. And yet Jesus says that there has never been a man born of woman who is greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and his whole life says this, from beginning to end, his life says he must increase and I must decrease. You see, the prophet of salvation is John the Baptist, but that prophet's whole life is framed within the framework of who Jesus Christ was. And some of you might need to hear this this morning, that lasting meaning, please hear me when I say that lasting meaning is not found when you get promotions at your job and you get raises at your job because if it was, you would finally get content with your promotions and you would finally get content with your raises. But we all know that there's not a man in this room who's ever been content with his promotions and content with his raises. Why? Because that's not where you can find purpose. You find purpose when you define your life the way Zacharias defined John the Baptist's life. And that is in light of who Jesus is. And it's in light of Jesus' mission on earth. Some of you are having marriage problems right now. you got the empty nest syndrome. You can't get together. And it's because you are looking for purpose in whatever reality TV show's coming on. You're looking for purpose in whatever sport you're chasing down. You're looking for purpose and storing up more money in your 401k. And your whole marriage could be completely restored if you would see that your purpose as a couple is to magnify, glorify, and join Jesus Christ on his mission. All of a sudden, you're working together. All of a sudden, you have unified purpose. All of a sudden, everything comes together because lasting meaning in our lives, lasting meaning in our marriages, lasting meaning in our families, lasting meaning in our church is only found when we define our lives, our marriages, our families, our church in relation to what we can do and should do for the Lord Jesus Christ. If the greatest man ever born of woman had his whole life framed around Jesus, then we need to frame ours that way too. We need to be satisfied with obscurity in the world as long as it brings Jesus to the forefront. We need to be satisfied with personal decrease as long as Jesus gets increased. It's about... Jesus, and I could go on a rant here. I could go on a rant here because we can get really caught up in marketing and promoting ourselves, our church, our ministries. And listen, if we're not marketing and promoting Jesus, we're idolaters. We're idolaters. This, is, this should be about Jesus. Jesus. That's the purpose of salvation. It's Jesus. This is a powerful salvation. It's a promised salvation. It's a purposeful salvation. And there's a prophet of salvation. And lastly, I want us to see in verses 77 to 79, the peace of salvation. Verse 77 says to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. He gives to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of what? Peace. You know what everybody deep down inside wants and needs and searches for? It's peace with God. 
peace with God. And here we see Zechari- in Zechariah's song that salvation is not only powerful, it's not only promised and purposeful, there's not only a prophet whose life is centered around this salvation, but it is peaceful. It brings us peace through forgiveness and through mercy. And I know I've shared this before, and I'll share it again, because I really just don't have new sermons. I preach the same one every Sunday. I don't know if you've called up on that, just with different texts. Whenever you find out, I guess y'all can run me off and get somebody that's got fresh information and cool stats. But I probably told this before, and I'll tell it again. But I want you to imagine, you know, you need peace with God. Imagine with me. Imagine Jesus Christ standing on the edge of a giant cliff. And at the bottom of that cliff is the ocean. And the tide is going out. And you approach Jesus as he stands on the edge of that giant cliff. And you hear the ocean waves as they're going out to sea. And he turns and he looks at you and you give him your sin. You give him your iniquity. You give him your transgression. What is Jesus going to do? Does Jesus open your sin, scroll up, and give you a 45-minute lecture on how naughty you are and, and how bad you've been and how you should have really done better and how the scales don't measure up and you just don't weigh enough and, you know, we better, we better check up and, and you need to go back and try again? No, we bring our sin, we bring our iniquity, we bring our transgression to Jesus, and Jesus crumples it up and he throws it on the ground and he stomps it under his feet to bits. And then he picks up those bits and he throws them behind his back. He throws them over his shoulder and they go off of that cliff. Just view this in your mind's eye. They go off of that cliff and they plummet down into the ocean and they begin to sink down into the depths of the sea and the tide carries them out so far that you never even see them anymore and Jesus doesn't remember them anymore. Wouldn't that be great if you could just take your sin to Jesus and and he would just, right now this morning, he would take it and just stomp it and the dirt, pick it up, throw it over his shoulder, drop it into the midst of the sea, let it be taken so far away that he never remembers it again. Wouldn't that be great if you could do that? That's exactly, exactly what the Bible says he does. Micah chapter 7 and verse 19 says, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Isaiah 38, 17 says, you have cast all my sins behind your back. Micah 7, 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31.34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If you believe these things and you believe that Jesus Christ can do that for you, then all of this is true in your life and you ought to have peace. This is a peace-bringing salvation, not a burden-bringing salvation. You see, so many, try not to get on another tear here, but so many people, so many people think, well, I'm going to become a Christian, so now I have to start doing all those things I've always dreaded. And I've got to make a priority, these things that are big burdens, and you know, I've got to get up and go to church. I've got got to read my Bible, somebody's going to ask me. I've got to pray, I guess I need to put something in the plate, even if it's an empty envelope, so it looks like I'm doing my thing. You know, I've got to do these things, because now I'm a Christian. That is not being a Christian, that is being religious. That's what the Muslims that we knew would do. They would go, well, I've got to go pray. 
I've got to celebrate Ramadan. Can't wait till it gets dark so I can eat. I've got to, I've got to do these things. That's religion. Christianity is God tra- changes your heart and gives you peace with God. And now you love to read your Bible. Now you love to pray. You love to go to church. You love to give. You love to serve. You've been set free to live free in Jesus Christ. And if that is not you, then maybe you've got a healthy dose of religion this morning, but you don't have peace with God. You may have a heavy burden from God trying to be good enough, but you don't have forgiveness and mercy and peace that is found in salvation. Do you have peace with this God? So we say, yes, I have peace. I have peace with God. Is it a true biblical peace with God? Not just I've soothed my conscience, but do you really have peace with God? Is He at peace with you? If so, then you have a purpose. It doesn't matter if you're 110 years old and can't get around. You have a purpose. If you are on this side of heaven, you have a purpose. And that purpose is serving Him to the best of your ability, to the fullest of your ability, from right now today, throughout eternity. That is why you exist. Not for you, but for Him. He has blessed you with salvation, with peace, so that you may serve Him wholeheartedly. Remember Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. God be gracious to us, and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. And verse 7. God blesses us. That all the ends of the earth may fear him. If you have peace with God, if you have assurance with Jesus Christ, you have a purpose, and that purpose is doing everything that you can possibly do to serve him and to make his name known from here to the ends of the earth. And if you do not have that peace with God, you can. You can. You can have peace with God if you receive this forgiveness. And this mercy by faith. Such, I believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless, spotless, perfect, holy life for me. And I believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for me to pay for my sins. And I believe Jesus Christ was buried with my sins. And I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead to purchase my redemption. And I through faith, am turning away from my old life. And I, through faith, am turning to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to throw myself on His mercy. I'm going to throw myself upon His grace. And I'm going to trust wholeheartedly in Him. And listen, when you do that, He will take all of your sin, past, present, future, crumple it under His feet, throw it behind His back, take it into the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west, and He will remember it no more. And you can have peace with God. Right now, today, this morning, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that peace? If not, we want to invite you to respond this morning. And we'll be glad to pray with you, talk with you, and point you to Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the folks that are here, and for the message of Zacharias, his prophecy of salvation, and the wonders of salvation. We thank you for that. We pray that you would drive it into our hearts, speak it into our hearts, help us to hear your voice and to respond to your still small voice and to your conviction as you lead us to respond. May we not leave here 
without doing whatever it is you might call us to do, whether it's committing ourselves to deeper, more richer, fuller, consistent service, or whether it's coming to know you and finding peace with you through salvation. We pray that whatever it is we would do as you lead us. In Jesus' name we pray.